Joe. So this weekend, we are kicking off Advent. And if you're not sure what Advent is, it literally means arrival. For the Jews, they were looking for the arrival of the Messiah during this really dark period. In fact, they were looking for the Messiah for a very long time, especially towards the end. They were crying out, God, come. And finally, he did in Jesus. And now he has come, but we're waiting for him to come again. And so we celebrate over these next four weeks Advent, longing for the arrival again of Jesus. Thank you to the Roberts family who uh, lit the candle of hope. And as we look at this series of Advent topics, we want to look at a brand new message series that we've entitled Just in Time. This is all about God's timing in our lives and the timing that he came to this earth with. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at just the right time, which we'll look at today. And it was just the right person. Jesus is exactly who we needed. And when he came, he came with just the right message. And we're going to be looking at all of these topics through the lens of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. So open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. This is going to be our anchor uh, passage throughout the next few weeks, and then we'll jump into a few other verses throughout our time as well. But Paul wants to tell us about the timing of Jesus and what he brought with him. The Apostle Paul says in verse 4, But when the right time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir a passage of hope, and it begins with God came just at the right time. Paul knew, and we know, that it's all about timing in our lives, isn't it? When you look back at your life, and you look at all of the significant things that have happened, and even the little things that happen as well, if you weren't in the right place at the right time, those things would not have happened. But with the right timing, things like success or failure can happen based upon when that timing happens. Or if it's about the right timing, it can be the difference of life or death. It's all about the right timing. I'll give you an example. This is uh, a slightly easier example to understand. If you are a golfer, as I used to be before my back hurt, I think that was the Lord's grace to allow me never to play golf again. I used to play a lot of golf at Keys Golf Course, which is right next to the chapel a few years ago. And I knew the difference of the right timing on my drive. If I had the right timing, that drive went right down the fairway. If I didn't, I would get to hole number three, which is right along the woods. And I oftentimes did not have the right timing on my drive. And so often, the woods would suck, in my, would suck in the golf ball and never spit it back out. I would hook my shot to the right. And if you were to go into those woods right now, you would see many of my golf balls in those woods. Because it's all about the right timing. Or you know if you're traveling and you have to make a connecting flight. And something's going wrong with your flight. If you don't have the right timing to get off that flight and to get to your connecting flight, it's going to be a long day in the airport. 
It's all about the right timing with the Browns offense. We're starting Joe Flacco today, who used to beat up on the Browns so badly with the Ravens that hopefully he has the right timing and can bring us victory against the Rams. It's all about the right timing. Even in the big things of life, there have been times where you've seen the doctor and the doctor looks at you and said, oh, you got here just in time. Because if you would have waited just a little bit longer, I don't know if we could have treated you, but because you're here right at the right time, we can treat you and hopefully get you back to normal again. It was the right timing and you were in the right place when you met your best friend or you met your spouse or you had that encounter with somebody that changed your life. It's all about the right timing. And that's why Apostle Paul says it was the right time when Jesus came to this earth. It was the perfect time when he came. Which leads me to the question of why. Why was that the right time? Of all the timing that God could have sent Jesus, he sends him during a time where it was very difficult for many people, especially the Israelites. Because right before Jesus comes to this earth, we find ourselves in the period that's called the 400 years of silence. It's that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where Malachi ends the Old Testament, and then we pick it up again in Matthew in the New Testament. But in between there, there is 400 years of silence. And though life went on as normal, God seemed to shut the heaven door, heavenly doors from the inside out. And it's felt like God did not care about the people anymore. And those 400 years of silence were excruciating. And if we went back in time, I want to show you exactly what was going on during those 400 years. During those 400 years where God seemed to not care, seemed to not communicate with his people, it was 400 years of war, 400 years of upheaval, 400 years of unfulfilled hopes, the Israelites seemed to be fighting with everybody. Things were happening where you're like, where is God at? It begins in 538 BC, where King Cyrus freed the Israelites from captivity and sent them home where they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed. It was around this time that the Jews and the Samaritans started to have fights and arguments. In fact, the Samaritans created their own temple and introduced these false gods into worship. And the Jews and the Samaritans, they had issues with each other for years. It's the reason why when Jesus comes and shows us what it means to help other people and love other people, he radically challenges the Israelites by using a good Samaritan to show them what love really looks like. As we go on, we meet Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great then came in and dominated the region. His reign brought Greek customs, culture, and most notably the Greek language. The New Testament is translated from Koine Greek, which is the common Greek language in the day. Around this time, they built roads to make it easier to travel and made it easier for military to travel as well. But what they didn't know is those roads allowed people to spread this Greek language and along with that, the Greek New Testament. And missionaries were able to use these roads to spread the gospel in ways they never could have imagined because they were going through things like this. A cool thing that God was up to, even though he seemed pretty silent. In 198 BC, Syria overthrew Egypt. 
Israel was now under the control of a leader who attempted to stamp out the Jews altogether. The Syrian leader came on and desecrated the temple, forced Jews to eat pork, did not allow for Sabbaths or festivals anymore, came in and pretty much told the Jews, you can't worship Yahweh anymore. And some Jews tried to resist because this was their faith, but for some, they just went along with it because it was the easy thing to do. All of this in the 400 years leads to two political and religious groups that formed during this time. The first one many of us know are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were the legalists of the day. Now the Pharisees we know because Jesus came on the scene and man, he really told them how he felt about them. It was the Pharisees who thought they were the righteous religious people of the day. And Jesus came and said, look, on the outside you think you know what you're doing, but on the inside you do not have faith in God. God does not know you. Because the Pharisees, they were coming along and putting rules on top of rules on top of rules. Sure, they obeyed the Mosaic law, but then they put stipulations on that that nobody could follow. And because of that, Jews started to walk away from their faith. Gentiles who were on the outside looking in were like, I would never be able to attain to that status. There was frustration. People didn't understand this God that they had worshipped for such a long time because the Pharisees were getting in the way of God. And then we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the rationalists of the day, the political, wealthy elite who aligned themselves with Rome. They wanted to make sure everything was at peace with Rome, and because of that, they oppressed the poor. And with that, they oppressed Jews as well. 400 years of this. On and on and on and on. And they would cry out to God, and God seemed to not care. But he did. What's interesting is sometimes when God seems silent, he may not be speaking, but it doesn't mean that he's not at work. I love what Warren Wearsby says. He says, historians tell us that the Roman world was in great expectation, waiting for a deliverer at the time that Jesus was born. The old religions were dying. The old philosophies were empty and powerless to change men's lives. Strange new mystery religions were invading the empire. Religious bankruptcy and spiritual hunger were everywhere. God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son. Though God was silent for 400 years, it increased the need for the arrival of the Messiah. And that's why God came at the right time. Though God was silent, God was not inactive. And all of the things from the fighting to the frustration to the rise of the Roman Empire, to all of the things that looked like everything was stacked against God, God was at work. And in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the silence, one day, all of a sudden, in Bethlehem, they heard a cry. The cry of a baby who would grow up to be the savior of the world. God's timing is perfect. And though he seems silent, he is at work preparing for an even greater work than we can imagine. Now, when you look back in time, that looks great. We weren't living in that time, and so we can look back and say, man, yeah, God was up to something. Praise God for that. He didn't waste those 400 years. 
But when you're going through it, it feels like 400 years. There's a quote that I love to read that I think makes a lot of sense. And it says this, God is rarely early. He's never late, but he's always on time, his time. That's such a great quote. When it's on the wall or on a coffee cup in the morning. But when this is my life, it's a lot different. Because God's timing has almost never coincided with my timing. To me, God always seems late. I really want God to come at a certain time, but it seems like when I want him to come, he is silent. And though eventually I'm grateful for his timing, because when I look at the situation at hand, I think to myself, oh my goodness, I wasn't ready for that. In the moment though, when you're suffering, when you're going through hard times, when you're crying out to God and you can't hear him, his timing is difficult for us to understand. And there are many of you that feel the same way. Many of you who think to themselves, I have this relationship with God and everything's been going well, but then all of a sudden when I needed him the most, I'm crying out to him and it feels like the heavenly doors are closed and locked. C.S. Lewis said that when he lost his wife. He talked about how awesome his relationship with God was until he had to go through grief. And it was in those grief moments where it felt like heaven's doors were shut to him. And he could not understand in his darkest moment why God seemed so distant. Maybe your words are like the psalmist's words. Where he says, wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. He's like, look, the alarm is going off, Lord. Turn it off and wake up. Stop hitting snooze. It feels like you're just sleeping through all of the things that I am going through. How could you abandon me? How could you sleep during a time like this? Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and oppression? We collapse in the dust, lying face down in the dirt. Rise up, help us. God, I am in need. The psalmist says, I am at a desperate time in my life, and it feels like you don't care. You're just sleeping right through it. What I love about the psalmist's words is that he's honest with God. We saw that last week when we looked at Job. That he's able to be honest. That's what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is taking who you are and just giving that to God and allowing him to receive what you have. And the psalmist cries out in the silence, where are you? You're probably crying out, where are you? There are some of you that when you look at the chapters that have already been written of your story with God, God was speaking, God was present, God was performing miracles in your life, God was so active, and now, if you had to title the chapter you're in, you may say, where in the world is this God at? Or you may say, if God loves me, why is he silent when I need him the most? Why is God sleeping when I need him to be awake? And for some of you, you're having a rich time with the Lord. You're hearing him. Things are going well. You would describe your faith that you're on top of the mountaintop. But eventually, eventually, God will become silent. And the question is, what do you do during that time? Like the Israelites who had to endure this for 400 years, what do you do if it's four days 
for weeks, for months, for years, that God is silent. How do you handle that? For the rest of our time together, I want to show you some ways that when God is silent, he is still at work, that his timing is perfect, even though it doesn't always feel like it. The first is this. In the silence, seek God. Slow down and seek after his presence. I wonder for the Israelites, as they were seeking God for a time and he was quiet, if for many of them, they just gave up. They were in this for a relationship with God and eventually it felt like God wanted nothing to do with them and so they too gave up on God. Or they started to busy themselves with different things in order to try to keep those desires at bay. Or they just eventually kept going to God but felt like they did, he didn't care. Whatever that was, I know there were times probably in their lives and yours when the only thing you don't want to do is to seek him. But I'm telling you, there is something beautiful that happens when you seek after God and you don't give up on him, especially in the silence. When you do that, God is at work in a way where you will discover more of his character and you will trust him more than you ever could when he was speaking to you. Because you discover he cannot change. That he's always been there even though he may not be speaking. And even though he's not speaking, he is at work behind the scenes crafting things together to make sure at the end of the day it's for your good. You may not always like it. I don't always like God's plan. I don't always feel like it feels good. But it's always good for me. Because if you don't approach it that way, what do you do? You take control. How many of us in here take control when things start to get out of control? And sure, you go to the Lord, and if he doesn't answer you, what do you do? You start to take over. You control your life, and then you don't like what God's doing in your kids' lives or other people's lives that are close, so you start to control that too. And what happens when you're in control after a while? Your life gets out of control. You try so hard to be the God of your life, but you were never, ever given that role in the first place. Or you try to do certain things in your life to where you think to yourself, okay, God, if I were you, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And you start to chart your own course, and you start going your own way, and you find out pretty quickly it's a dead end. There's so many of us in this room, instead of seeking God, we hold on control, we do things our own way, we seek after other things to satisfy us because God is not doing it at this time. But let me tell you, God is doing something far more better than you can ever imagine. For those 400 years, the Jews couldn't see it, but we see it. He teed it up so that Jesus can come and he is teeing it up in your life so that Jesus can come and do something that you couldn't even imagine as you wait in silence. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 63.1. It's, oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. At the end of the day, Lord, I am thirsty, but it's only you who can quench this thirst. I want to go after you and keep waiting for you and continue to seek you no matter what you do in response. Or Psalm 62, one through two. I'm going to wait quietly before God. 
for I know my victory comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will never be shaken. Even though God is quiet, even when life's out of control, I'm going back to him because the foundation will not move. The circumstances of life may be crushing me and the storms are coming in, but God, I go to you and I will stand on the truth that I find in your word. Even if you're not speaking to me through circumstances, your word speaks to me, tells me who you are, and I will stand on you even in the darkness, even in the storms. For when you are quiet, you still are at work. You are still speaking. And you're teaching me something in these moments I could have never learned otherwise. Think about in the quietness. Think about in the darkness. Think about in your struggles. You hate those things, and so do I. But on the other side of those things, you've come out stronger. You've learned things you could have never learned on the mountaintop. Some of you that have suffered are going through things that's going to help other people. You're discovering things about God that you could have never learned if you didn't go through this. In the silence, keep seeking after him. One of my favorite prayers is by an unknown Confederate soldier who also felt like God was quiet and was crying out to him in the midst of battle. And here's what he says. I asked for strength that I, made, that I might achieve. I was made weak that I may learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity, that I might do better things. I asked for riches, that I may be happy. I was given poverty, so that I may be wise. I asked for power, that I might have the praise of other people. I was given weakness, so that I may feel the need for God and God alone. I asked for all things that I may enjoy life. I was given life so that I may enjoy all things. I got nothing what I asked for, but everything that I hoped for. For despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered, and I, among all people, are most richly blessed. Seek after him, and he will give you and teach you things he would never be able to give you if it wasn't in the midst of the silence. In the silence, pursue a heart of worship toward God. I love our worship team. They just led us into some incredible songs of worship. And if we were to, decide, to define worship, that would be a part of worship. And what I love about church is when we come together, when we're singing those songs it's to direct our hearts from ourselves and our circumstances unto God so we can bring him our circumstances. It's a reorientation of our hearts because for the last six days, if we're honest, our hearts are usually selfish and self-absorbed and only concerned about the things that we want to see God do. But when we get into the house of the Lord and we worship him, we start to see him and he starts to cloud out everything else in our lives. That's an aspect of worship. But worship isn't just a Sunday thing we do with music. It's a life thing that we do with every breath. Every single day you and I wake up, we worship. We may not bow down to something, literally, but in our hearts we're constantly bowing down to something. For worship literally means worth-ship. That we give worth or value or significance to things that we hope in return will give us the very things that we asked for. We find value, significance, and worth in so many things. We don't think about it. It's always in the background of our lives. We are constantly bowing down to something and someone. 
And if it's not God, it's a substitute that we've put in God's place to give us what we need in this life. And so often when we're going through dark times and God's not showing up, instead of waiting for him and allowing him to do his will in our lives, we like to go to other things to give us temporary satisfaction. We go to things like money, sex, outward appearance, for some video games, other things of material items, relationships, all these things in our lives that we go to and we worship, we look for value from those, significance from those, worth from those because that's what you're created to do. You will find it in something. The problem with all of those things is it feels really good in the moment. But then the moments that come after that, they leave you with guilt. They leave you dissatisfied. They leave you wanting more. But you and I were created to worship something that when we worship it, it will give us more than even what we gave in return. And so if you're worshiping something and it's leaving you disappointed, or you're worshiping something and it's leaving you feeling hollow, or you're worshiping something and it's not leading to an overflow of peace and joy in your life, you and I have substituted God for something else. And in the silence, when we're waiting for God to show up just at the right time, it's still an opportunity to worship to put our worth and value in him so we can still get the significance that he wants to give us. I love the way that the psalmist puts it in Psalm 63, three through eight. He says, your unfailing love is better than life itself. If what you're worshiping right now can give you something even better than what you're getting, then you're worshiping the Lord. But if it is giving you even something a little less than better, you're worshiping something that will always disappoint you. He says, how I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live. Lifting my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. More. If the thing that you're worshiping or living for isn't giving you more, then you are sorely living a life for something that will continue to give you less than what you deserve. You deserve more. God wants to give you more. And so often we settle for less because we want the quick fix instead of the long return. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lay awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. And because you're my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. If you can say that about sex, if you can say that about money, if you can say that about another person, that it gives you more, and better, and will give you the security you long for, keep worshiping that thing, but I promise you, it won't. It will disappoint you. And then you're gonna want more of it, and more of it, and more of it. And you know what we call that? Addiction. Jesus says you don't have to be addicted to anything. I will give you more, I will give you better. And I know it doesn't feel like I'm talking to you right now. I know it feels like the doors of heaven are closed. But by faith, if you approach me, I will give you all that you need, all that you want, and more and better. Finally, in the silence, we remember. Somebody once said, don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. How true is that? How often when life is hard, life is difficult, God isn't speaking to us, we so quickly forget his character. 
We forget how good he's been to us. But when we look back at our life as a whole, we see in the light the character of God, the kindness of God, the generosity of God, the holiness of God, the love of God, the judgment of God, the grace of God, all of the things of God that is so hard to see in the darkness, we have to go back and remember what it was like when we believed in the light. And it's in that that should help us in the darkness. We remember. We remember what it was like living in that light so that it'll light up our darkness. It's the psalmist that says, let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with the love and tender mercies of God. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. While we wait, while we wait, we never stop depending. While we wait, we remember what God has done for us. What's so beautiful about that is Jesus knew we are very forgetful people. And so he said to remember him by taking communion and remembering what he's done for us on the cross. And so if you have your communion cups with you, would you grab those? If not, raise your hand and our, one of our greeters will come along and, along and pass those to you. I don't want you to take it yet because I want to lead you through this for a few moments. Paul, he gives us instructions in 1 Corinthians. He says, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you peel back the top layer and you hold that wafer in your hand, reflect on those words on the night he was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by those who loved him the most so that you and I will never have to be betrayed by anyone, including him, forever. He was the one that people turned his back on so that God will never have to turn his back on us. So that even though it feels like it's been 400 years of silence in your life, God is still there and he is at work. And we remember that today for what he's done for us on the cross. Do this to remember Jesus. Paul goes on to say, in chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Before we drink this, I want you to remember what Jesus said on the cross. In the midst of, of this horrible, physical, and more importantly, spiritual pain that he was going through, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cries that out loud, and he takes on that loneliness in that moment so that he can look you and I in the eyes and say, I will never forsake you. I was given up on so that you may know I will never give up on you. So even though he's quiet right now, God is doing something even greater in your life so that someday when he shows up on time, it will be the right time. 
So let's do this to remember him. Would you stand with me this morning and I just want to ask you to repeat after me these words. But when the right time came, a baby cried. The silence was broken. The waiting was over. Jesus, the Savior of the world, has been born. Lord, that is our prayer. That at the right time, you showed up exactly when you knew you needed to in order to get the greatest results you could, not just for you, but for us. And so, Lord, as we wait for you, we don't want to run ahead of you. We don't want to run behind you. We want to run with you so that when it's your time, you will come and do exactly what you want to do in our lives. We trust you and affirm that trust in you. Thank you for the cross as that reminder that though you were forsaken, we never will be. In Jesus' name.